Welcome to Black Writer Therapy, a podcast where Black women writers are invited to sit on the proverbial couch, have a cup of tea, and share the stories behind the stories, and what it really takes to write books about Black women in an industry that still prefers white as the default. I'm your host, published author and unlicensed therapist, Alishine. Black Writer Therapy is now in session. Veronica G. Henry is the author of Bacchanal, The Quarter Storm, and The Foreign Exchange, published in 2023. Bacchanal was chosen as an Amazon editor's pick for Best African American and was shortlisted for the Wade Wellman Award. She is a viable Paradise alum and a member of SFWA and MWA. And now for our guest, Miss Veronica G. Henry. Hi, Miss Veronica G. Henry. How are you doing? I'm doing good. How are you today, Ella? I'm great. I had to kind of um, emphasize the G because um, when I first went in to look for you on on Instagram after Yasmin said, oh, yeah, you definitely need to have her on, mm-hmm. Yasmin Ongo. And yep. I said, okay. But then I looked up Veronica Henry and I was like, mm. wait a second. <laughs> I said, Yasmin, <laughs> you know, this is for, you know, Black women writers. She was like, oh, my God, I think you have to put the G in. So mm-hmm. I was really confused. But yeah. Yeah, I'm glad I'm glad you figured it out. And it's something that's um, plagued me. I guess there is another Veronica Henry, um, thus the G. So that's that's the way we came up to distinguish. Very good. Very good. So before we get into any of the things, I'd like to ask you, how are you healing today? Oh, that's an excellent question. I have been healing actually all week. And I think One of the things that I have been guilty of, as I know a lot of authors have been guilty of, is that constant go and do mentality. That's Mm -hmm. balancing a full-time job, that's balancing other family, you know, other obligations, tons of other things going on, along with writing. Writing is a career in and of itself, writing and promoting. And and in fact, I've heard from writers that have been in this game much longer than I that the job used to be writing and Mm -hmm. and writing was enough and that was tough enough. But now in this age, promoting has become such a big part of what we have to do. It's not something that any of us are trained for. It's not something that uh, most of us want to do in fact, because writers by and large, and I I know I'm making a a sweeping statement, but by and large, we're introverts. We Mm -hmm. um, live in our heads. We love to write, research, to read. Um, So that promotion part is almost like two full-time jobs to me because of the energy that it takes away from the craft and the time that it takes. So back to your question, the way that I am healing this week is by doing absolutely nothing. There is a day that I took, no lie, that I got up, had some breakfast and checked some emails and then largely sat on the couch. And I can't tell you when I have done that in ever really. Even on the weekends, right? It's go. It's like, oh, I got to get the errands done. Oh, I got to take care of this family thing. Oh, I have to get some more work in even in my case. But that day I sat and I did nothing. It was the best thing ever. That is awesome. Like that is, I have not gotten this answer ever. (laughs) No one has said, oh, I'll tell you how I'm healing. I did nothing. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Yeah, because uh, I can tell you what, if you don't sit down, your body will eventually say, you know, I'm tired. Yep. It'll tell you it'll and, yes. and it'll shut down for you. Exactly. So I had that day of nothingness. And then largely most of the week, it was a total scale back of what my normal, normal activity level is. And to say that I could do that for another six months, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> I would love to, but can't. <laughs> so I will take this week as the blessing that it was. That is awesome. Like, really, I think that's like, yeah, that's going to be a soundbite, Miss Veronica. That's going to be a soundbite. Yeah. How are you healing? By doing nothing. Because I have yeah. a right to rest. I have yes. a right to be still. Yes. I love that. Okay. So, you know, I did your biography before we came on. And and I also kind of, you know, went through your website because, you know, 
I got to know who I'm speaking with. And so you're Sierra Leonean. I am. Let me make a clarification. I am not Sierra Leonean. I am born and raised, obviously, here in America. But I did an ancestry test that revealed my Sierra Leonean lineage. Um, of which I am very proud and actually made the trip back to Sierra Leone, spent almost um, a month, uh, as a matter of fact. They are just kind of connecting, meeting people, going home. It was a home going for me. And it was the most important trip experience and revelation of my entire life. Like that is crazy. I was going to ask you, like, did it feel when you were there? Did it feel more like, wait, this feels more home than... Oh, absolutely. It's it's the most bizarre thing, right? It's There's something that's in the blood of um, members of the African diaspora that can't be denied, even by the people who want to deny it, even by the people mm-hmm. who want to turn and look away from it. It's there nonetheless. And as soon as my feet hit the ground, I'm pausing because I don't have the words. Oh, it was the most um, incredible feeling. Even, you know, as I stepped out of the plane, it's one of those things where you're not going directly into the, you know, the terminal. So you had to come out of the plane, go down that, you know, stairway. And mm-hmm. then my feet hit the ground in Africa, in Sierra Leone. And just that feeling. And then the people who were with me, who did not know that I was not, you know, a person that was born on the continent until I opened my mouth. And then right. when they did, and then the welcome homes, and then the, oh, you look like this. You look like you were from this place. I oh. can tell you're from here. All those sorts I of things. I have never, yeah, I have never felt more at home in my entire life. And that is it so, was that's amazing. Yeah, it was, it was not only that external recognition, but it was an internal thing mm-hmm. as well. And, you know, I just, it, I just kind of felt it. And I knew that I was at the place where my ancestors began. I was at the place where we separated, but I was making that return. And it, again, it was just the most important thing that I could have done for myself. All the words that come from you are beautiful. Oh, oh, thank you. <laughs> like really, and because they're so genuine and they're so like filled with your truth, mm-hmm. they are just really beautiful. And I maybe I'm just emotional today, but like yeah, tearing up. I'm like tearing up a little bit because wow, what an experience. And now you get to bring that back with you here. Absolutely. Yeah. And walk in that power and that knowledge. Absolutely. When I was there, one of the things that I I visited, one of the places that I visited, it's called Bunce Island. And there's the the remnants of a slave castle there. And you can actually see, you know, the walls crumbling, the cannons, some of the um, not, not much of it is left there, but I was able to go there. I was able to sign my name in that book to say that I was there, that I recognized that um, an ancestor, two, three, 10,000, I don't know, came through that place. And I'm here to, to tell you that I see you, that I'm proud of you, that I thank you for surviving so that I could even be here to make this trip back. And I know it wasn't easy, but yeah, it was, it was just incredible. I just want to sit here and bask. I don't even want, I just want to hear you talk. Just tell me whatever <laughs> you want, because I'm serious. It's just like, yeah, it's uh, now I get your writing. Just, I get your writing. Now. Oh, that, that, that means a lot. Yeah. I mean, I got it before, you know, cause I was fangirling like some mm-hmm. teeny bopper, but I get it now. Yeah. Why there's such a, a kind of visceral connection to Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, for the reader, if if they're about it, then it's like you can't not. Yes, you'll feel it. Yes. Yep. You will feel it. Yes. And that, that all of that goes into my fiction. All of that changed my perspective on on what it means to be a, an African-American, what it means to be of African descent, but not be African, but still have a love and reverence for that. Mm-hmm. but want to, and that's why I really wanted to make that distinction. I realized that I'm not Sierra Leonean. That was taken from me, but I am of Sierra Leonean ancestry. And I, but I want to be respectful of the people who were born there, who, who've lived that culture, who understand that culture, who are lucky enough to have aunts and uncles and cousins and, and family there that I don't, I, I made some found mm-hmm. family, but you know, I don't, I don't have that experience. So I, I want right. to make sure that I don't take away from the people who live it. But I also want to recognize that I have a right to to my piece of that, to my to that bit of me that is of that ancestry 
And like it or not, it comes through in who I am and it comes, it's going to come through in my craft. Uh, and I, I don't m misrepresent that in any way. It's just my experience as, as a member of the African diaspora with, with all of these um, external um, influences that, you know, make up a part of who I am. So yeah. I love that part and I have to be grateful for the part, you know, that is me here. Yeah. Yeah. Very, I, if you hear beautiful more than you like to hear today, just kind of, you know, let me have my, my day. Okay. I will. <laughs> I'm going to have my day. And so I was interested because like, I'm, I'm in the process of working. I, well, I'm not in the process of, I'm working on this piece and it's like crazy research. Mm -hmm. And so I've been researching the connection between Gullah Geechee mm -hmm. and Sierra Leone. I'm here in South Carolina, and I've always been fascinated with the coastal sea island and the Gullah Geechee culture. And right. I know that there's like this crossover there with is. like the culture, the language, and a lot of other things. So mm -hmm. I'm doing the research. And so I was like, I wanted to just kind of pick your brain um, and see like, but you already answered it because there is this right. seamless connection. And I think, wow. There is, and I have done some research, and I'm going to mention another author here in a moment as well, but the research that I've done into that that particular portion of our uh, culture and my family, of course, is from South Carolina, has been, you know, generation after generation. That's that's where my mom's side of the family is from. That's my origins. Okay. But not necessarily, you know, fully steeped in the Gullah Geechee culture, but, you know, from that South Carolina area where... Mm -hmm. I think they were able to, through whatever means, just retain a large portion of that culture, yeah. just untouched, right? Yes. It's from the food to the language to the religious practices, all that sort of thing. And it's really a fascinating um, thing to dive into. One of my good friends and also outstanding author, Eden Royce, is also from that area and very, very, very well raised in that culture. And that comes through in her writing as well. Another good person to talk to if you want to. But yeah, she's she's an expert in that space because she lived it. You know, that's her family. Right. That's how she grew up. And that's that's her culture. That's awesome. I think, yeah, I think you, you gave, gave her name. I'm not sure. But yes, mm -hmm. uh, thank you. It's fascinating to me. It yeah, really it is. is. And you're working on a piece that's going to be based in that that culture? I am. I'm, I'm looking at the weird, I'm looking at mental health mental mm -hmm. illness and how how we would treat mental illness and specifically that culture because it's so closely it's like the closest thing I'm going to get to right. like an African culture right so I want to delve into how they treat it mm -hmm. the mentally ill within their culture versus how enslaved black people who were finally given some kind of treatment you know I, obviously it wasn't anything great right and I'm looking at how that kind of plays into the, what is it called? Oh my gosh, it's the new buzzword, but where your your mother and all of that, it comes down, you're born mm -hmm. with all of their stuff. Yeah, that generational trauma. Yes, and that's mm -hmm. what I'm looking at. That's fascinating. Um, and mostly because my mother is mentally ill. And, mm -hmm. and I just, you know, I grew up, I've never known her not to be, sick right I've never known her to be like healthy and whole and all mm. those things and I'm mm -hmm. like it came from somewhere right and I'm just trying to figure it all out because yeah. I'm like there has to be there has to be something that, that didn't click yeah you know because I have this belief that mental illness is kind of like a gateway to something broader and bigger that the universe wants us to have but we have to have the anchor, we have to be settled in ourselves to kind of be able to handle it. That's yeah. my perspective. And that's what I'm looking at playing around with. It's like, is mental illness just, oh, I don't have the capacity to handle the the uploads or the downloads that the universe is giving me because I don't mm -hmm. have the community and the support. Right. Or like, is it really a da-da-da-da-da? Exactly. That's kind of, that's kind of where I, I am. I, I look forward to reading that. That sounds fascinating. I've often kind of been of the opinion that because of the generational trauma and, and because especially in the black community, we are so really well-versed in kind of just stamping it down, saying, mm -hmm. that, okay, that doesn't exist. You got to gotta brush your shoulders off. You got to keep going. Yeah. Nope. Can't, can't really deal with that. If anyone on this planet needed some intergenerational uh, therapy, it is us and we don't get it and we don't. We don't necessarily subscribe to the fact that, okay, you can 
go to the doctor because you're there's something wrong with your heart. But when there's something wrong with your with your mind, when you need right. it's another part of the body. It's no different. When you need something's wrong with your mind, you're like, oh no, no, there's nothing there. Just look away. Don't need any help. Yes. But need a you need some help for the mind too. And and we don't necessarily, I think, Mm-mm. and we, and we certainly don't often get the help that we need. No, no. And it's such a huge stigma. Like I just remember growing up and my mom was always like, well, you know, so-and-so is blah, 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 her sisters and brothers. Cause it was like, right. you know, but so yeah, that's why I'm, I'm looking, I'm looking into that. So thank you for letting me, you know, sure. get that out. So this first segment that we're going into is called intentional writing. Mm-hmm. And it's intentional because the medical definition of intentions is the healing process of a wound. And I find that when I like when I read Black women, I don't care what genre you're writing mm-hmm. in, there's mm-hmm. always like this little nugget of let me make let me let me make you realize you're not doing this by yourself. You're not here on your own. And there's something that's like a little balm that mm-hmm. kind of soothes me. And right. I don't know if it's intentional in the writing process. And and the writers that I've spoken with so far have said, no, I don't think I sit down and say, I wonder how these words are going to heal my mm-hmm. readers or not even, I wonder how these words are going to heal me. But there's always this, you know, this healing that takes mm-hmm. place. So the first segment is intentional writing. And I asked you, what was your most cathartic book? And you gave uh, me, yes, I, you go ahead. Tell me. The most cathartic book that I wrote is Bacchanal, definitely. And I will say that it is the one that I got to spend the most time with, but that's not just it. I think when you look at the heart of that, there are, there's an issue that needs to be resolved between my protagonist, Liza, and her mother, Ella. And that I think is at the heart of a lot of the issues that we have in our, our community. Because Black mothers tend to raise their daughters to be strong, to weather the storm, to handle whatever comes um, at them, and to just keep pressing on. I think there's a little bit of a different dynamic um, between mothers and their sons. And, and, and that, that's not what the focus of this book was. The focus was on some of the challenges between mothers and daughters. And... Again, I did not write it intentionally as a healing thing. I wrote it as sort of an explanation or an exploration rather of the relationship dynamics in families and just the fact that they're not always perfect. In fact, usually they're not. Even for very, very close um, mothers and daughters, there's always an aspect of conflict. There's always an aspect of, I think, trauma, especially. Everybody has some sort of childhood trauma. And unwittingly, I think a lot of times it's passed down from generation Mm -hmm. to generation and it doesn't get healed or or dealed with. So I wanted to explore that relationship as sort of, um, you know, a B story to, you know, the whole carnival thing and the good versus evil and and all of that. But that is the book that I spent the most time on. That's the book that landed me an agent. And that is the book where I think the relationships come through very strongly and the impact of our decisions actually, you know, come through very strongly. There's a relationship also, sort of a mother-daughter um, proxy between Liza and Hope, her best mm-hmm. friend at the at the carnival. Hope's a little older. Hope is already married and has a child, you know, that's with her mother. Yes. So we're we're creating some some you know generational trauma there. She's not there to be able to to help raise every day, but she's made a decision to do the best that she could so that she could send money to help. You know, they're very challenging, you know, you know, circumstances to existing as a, a black woman, a black family, black couple, you know, during that time, like still today. But the relationship <laughs> between Liza and Hope was a good one. And I wanted her to have that love, to have that support, to have that sort of mother figure there in the carnival. But at the same time, and we're not going to do any spoilers, um, there comes a point where Hope has to make a decision um, that brings her into direct conflict with Liza. And again, I just think these things are, are just so relatable to our experiences with each other, um, with, you know, your friends, with your family, with, you know, people that you grow up with. And those are the things that I wanted to explore. Just the, the fact that we are all human, that we have to, that sometimes we make decisions that are not the best, 
sometimes we regret those decisions, um, but that we're all, we're all complicated, that we're all flawed, but there has to be uh, an aspect of acceptance and forgiveness for us to move on and keep going. Yeah. Like you're saying all this stuff and I'm just like, girl, keep it together. You cannot get blubbery on your freaking podcast because I'm telling you that's the the exploration of mother-daughter relationships. Mm-hmm. I'm fascinated by it because I have three daughters. Okay. Yeah. And like right now, my my oldest daughter's like she's 22 and she's at that age where that's mm-hmm. like the point of contention, right? And it's yes. like like, and I told her that I was like, look, I understand. I went through it with my mom. I'm trying to be that mom, but yeah. also I'm just like. I have to learn to choose me because I've I've chosen you for your whole life. Absolutely. I, I'm so I glad that you said it, that. Yeah. Yeah. I and think it gets to the hard. point. Yeah. I think it gets to the point where you do have to realize you have given your best. You have done um, the best that you can. And at a certain point, you have to claim you back. Um, and it's not just for you, it's for your kids as well, Yes, uh, because they have to then go on their own journey um, and you have to take up yours that starts without them as the primary focus. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's difficult um, for both. Oh. Right. Oh, like I, I, I empathize with my mom now. Like I actually, I call, I'm like, I'm so sorry. Mm-hmm. So sorry. Because like, but it, it hurts but also growing hurts. So mm-hmm. that's how I'm trying to frame it with her. So I love that in, in Bacchanal you had, like at first I didn't see the whole mother-daughter situation. Mm-hmm. I just said, okay, well, why would this woman leave her kid? Her whole family just left her. Yeah. And, but then as the book progresses, there it is, right? You're, you're getting to see, I had to do this so that you could have your, exactly. your, your time to grow because like, you can't stay with me and become... What exactly you who, what you need to be exactly and that as children we don't always understand um the decisions that our parents make and and we may not even agree with them but they sometimes have to make difficult decisions so that you can become who you need to become yeah and, and that's what liza had to come to terms with with her mother and and let go of that anger because that's what mm-hmm. you it, until you understand that, all you have is anger and resentment about, you know, yeah. what happened. Um, but yeah. if you're lucky enough to grow, and some people never get that resolution, um, but if you're lucky enough to grow and then to come to understand why decisions were made, then hopefully you can take that into a place of healing. But mm-hmm. I do recognize that sometimes people don't get there. No, yeah. no. And, and, you know, and that is a whole nother show. That's a whole yep. nother <laughs> Another conversation. (laughs) Yeah. But I love that, that, you know, you're focusing on the mother daughter situation. I thought it was really neat that you have your uh, Bacchanal carnival, Mm -hmm. because the first thing I thought of was Bacchus, Mm -hmm. the god of like all the things that, you know, the god Uh of good times, right? Yes. And so Mm -hmm. so you have this like, oh, it's a carnival and it's like, yeah. And I'm hearing all of the greatness and the little things, but I'm like, wait a minute. Yeah, it is so some sinister, dark, weird stuff going <laughs> on here. <laughs> and Bacchanal yeah. Carnival. So I love that juxtaposition. Why did you choose to do that? Because I think that is what life is. And when you look at the antagonist, Geneva, her African name's Ahiku and her chosen American name's Geneva. She is not a mother. She has her own very, very complicated history. And I'd love for people to read about that and tell me what they think. But she, in a way, views the people of this carnival as her children. Everybody else is collateral damage for her, right? She's, um, she's very singularly focused in that she has two things she cares about, her own survival and the people that she chooses to allow to work in this carnival. And again, in terms of complication, Geneva made, makes some very, very ugly decisions about, you know, what she is going to do to survive and at the cost, you know, of certain souls, but she wants to survive. But on the flip side, and, and I think it's it, at some level, everybody can kind of empathize with that. All she wants to do is live. All she wants mm-hmm. to do is reclaim what she thought was stolen from her as a child. And, and to live and to experience life, 
And she's willing to make a selfish choice to do that. But there's a reason behind it. And then the second thing is that in, in her own way, she views herself as the caretaker, as the mother, as the person responsible for the people of the carnival. And she takes that role seriously as well. Now she has a, an ulterior motive as well. She kind of uses them to go in search of this person, this person who ends up being right under her nose, mm -hmm. right? The person that she <laughs> knows might be able to challenge her status quo and bring an end to her own survival. But she, like everyone else, is flawed and complicated and um, in her own way still cares. So that's kind of the, the reasoning behind why I wanted to introduce some of the darker elements of, um, you know, carnivals are fun and creepy anyway, right? So I was like, I'm going to go yeah. there just because it's yes. fun. Um, but uh, I wanted to, to position both Geneva, both my antagonist and my protagonist mm -hmm. as people who were flawed, people who you could still empathize with, though, but people who... I hope that you questioned and you yelled at them for the decisions that they made. That's that's the part that I wanted to come across that, yeah, I understand, but you're still not right. This isn't cool what you're doing. And, you know, I just thought that was just the fun part of it. But I'm going to tell you what you did for me as a reader. Okay. I, I like I had and maybe I'm a little bit twisted, so sorry, but mm -hmm. I, I didn't look at Geneva and say, I can't believe she's devouring these little kids. So mm -hmm. I get because I'm like. I think it was probably, and I can't remember his name now because you know I read your book like a while ago. Mm -hmm. but he was the uh, the mat the the what is that manager Clay Clay, Clay that's yes mm -hmm. and that was a complicated character. Like oh, I gosh, just yeah. want you to write his story by itself. Oh yeah, like I've heard that from a lot of folks. So I'm like Clay because I really liked him, mm -hmm. and even when I learned what he had done in his youth and how it kind of destroyed him I mm -hmm. still liked him like you did for and again I'm sorry I can't remember Eloco. its name Eloco. the hairy dude yeah Eloco yeah now, I just did not like him I get at that. all mm -hmm. I could not find anything about him that was pleasant or pleasing <laughs> outside of the fact that he was so kind to and again his roommate was, yeah yes his roommate mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but just everything else about him it okay it screamed to me, toxic masculinity. Yeah, that's him. <laughs> Is that what it was? Because I was like, yeah, dude, talk about off. selfish. Yeah, yes. But then I was like, with with Geneva, I said, you know, and I don't know why I rationalized this for her. My mother's name is Genevia, and there's a really good chance that I was, I was okay. But I was yeah, like, you know wow. she is just ending the suffering. Yeah. <laughs> Because yes, that's what she thought. I'm so glad you brought that up. And it went past my mind, too. But that was the whole point is to her mind. She was picking people, children who were already in really, really bad situations and suffering. And to her mind, she was she was helping. She was helping. And mm -hmm. see, I guess, I, again, I may be twisted, but I see that. Mm -hmm. And for some reason, it does not like I'm like, OK, now, obviously. This is in the book, right? Like, not if it was like. <laughs> Yeah. Here right now, right? But in the right. book, I could so she was not a character. And most protagonists um, or excuse me, antagonists are like, oh God, I don't like this. But mm -hmm. she was not. You made her like you gave her humanity. I'm so glad to hear that that's what you read it, read her, and that's what my hope was. You did. You did a great job. So I was like, if I was supposed to not like Geneva, sorry, Miss mm -hmm. Veronica, but I was <laughs> I was feeling and but I but I felt that way about most of the characters. Like you mm -hmm. gave them such depth. And yeah. and there was just even my man who turned into the was he a he wasn't a wolf. He was it's an African were hyena. Ishe. I loved him. Yeah. Even me when too. he lost control and went out there and maimed people, killed people. But I'm like there are so many facets to human personality mm -hmm. and like how we are. I, they were all very human yeah. to me. Mm -hmm. And I, I saw in Geneva, every mother who is like, how do I, how do I find, you know, I can maintain myself and survive as a woman mm -hmm. and, and still be a nurturing mother, but, but still be seen as like a whole person outside mm -hmm. of that. Yeah. 
you know, and it's like that selfishness that makes you feel guilty for wanting just to be you, wanting to be seen as I am a woman. Yes, I had children, mm-hmm. but also before that, I was I was a woman. Yeah, like I was a person you know? before that. Yep, absolutely. Because once you have children, you become mommy. Yep, and your you identity your is secondary. Names, yes, your children's names, mommy. Yep, right. And mm-hmm. so I guess that's why I empathized with her, and then Clay. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So and I she was get- I was just going to say that I wanted also to come across um her loneliness. You know, she is a a being that's been around obviously for for some time. Her mm-hmm. family um on the continent is gone. Um and she keeps people around her in the carnival but you know there's nobody quite like her and there's nobody that's going to quite understand her. So I wanted also her th- that loneliness that she felt the, the only mm-hmm. friend friend that she had is Queenie, obviously the, the Harlem um, person. Um, but even then she wasn't around all the time. Um, and she really wanted Clay to be her friend. So I, I really wanted to create a, a sympathetic, but still horrific antagonist. You did a great job. Really. You did an amazing <laughs> job. And I love like the, the guards. The, I'm oh, just yeah. the Zenza, Zenza and, and Ife, the, the homie soldiers. Yes. Mm-hmm. I was going what are they doing there? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Where did she get them? Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. but okay. But yeah, I absolutely love like the entire cast. It was just like a microcosm of of like you know Black America, absolutely, and America. You know, it was mm-hmm. just, you did such a great job. I know because I emailed you. I was like, oh, yeah, you did. So good. It was so good. <laughs> okay, absolutely was. How is this book cathartic for you? I will say that writing itself is the most cathartic um, thing that I've ever done in my life. I'm, I'm an introvert. I, I love being in my own head. Um, I'm cool being you know, by myself. And writing is that outlet of expression that I think most writers really, really love. And, and I count myself among that group. But for me, the amount of time I was able to spend in character development and really adding layers into these people to make them not only believable, but interesting, Mm -hmm. you know, right? And flawed, you know, that allows you to explore certain aspects of your own self, your personality, your history, people in your family Mm -hmm. And, and, and like it or not. If you know a writer, if you are close to a writer, some bit of you at some point or another is going to end up in one of their yeah. characters. So it's yeah. that exploration of self and of family and of people around you that I think allows you to have that distance to look at things with a new eye mm-hmm. and perhaps gain a little bit of understanding um, of people. Um, and I think that's the goal of fiction in general. It, it turns a, a cog in the mind um, to let you look at things from another perspective mm-hmm. um, and to give you insight into um, what someone else's life is like, perhaps why they do or say the things that they do. And that maybe on some level, you're able to use that to help guide your own interpersonal relationships and maybe make them better. Uh, I think that's the goal of fiction. That's what we hope. And I know that for me, just being able to do that through exploring the characters, even even Liza's roommate, why is her name escaping me at this time? Because I I've written too many books and too many characters, but her relationship <laughs> with her dad, you know, and understanding yeah. why after her mom passed, he just couldn't handle raising a child. He loved her. He even sought her out later on, but just, just those sorts of things, exploring those interpersonal relationships with family, with friends and all of that, the, the way that human beings exist in this very, very complicated world understanding a lot of times we're just doing the best that we can and it's not going to be perfect. So in that regard, I I hope that my fiction allows people to have that distance to look at themselves and look at the people around them and maybe understand them a little bit better. I don't even know that it's a a conscious thing. Absolutely. Reading fiction again across genres, right? Mm Mm-hmm. That's exactly what happens. If you're able to kind of suspend belief in reality, then you're able to sink into right into that that world that's been created for you. And you're right; it does give a completely different perspective. 
Mm-hmm. But it's not a conscious thing like, oh, I wonder if I'm going to learn something about sports. No, <laughs> and that's the beauty of it. And I think that's why it works because it's not yes. conscious. It's a subconscious right. thing definitely that, that that takes place. And I think like you, I you know read across genres. I read a, a ton for research. And, I, and there's a difference between fiction and nonfiction as well. There's a different muscle that's being exercised. Mm-hmm. But I think if you read widely enough, you know, I, I read something that took place in 1930s Korea. And, but I read, and then I read a story that takes place in the year 3000 on Jupiter. What I find that at the center of it, doesn't matter if it's a spaceship or if it's a, a culture that's been gone for 100 years, it's still people. Exactly. It's still people and it's still relationships between people. All the other stuff, the fun stuff, the fantastical stuff, crazy carnivals uh, or spaceships or ancient cultures, at the heart of it, it is still about how we relate to each other. That's it. Mm -hmm. You say you fight fantasy, right? Yep. That's what I have you as fantasy. I Mm -hmm. see, I'm reading this and I'm just like, you know, this, this feels more magical realism to me. Yeah, I've heard that as well. It feels more magical realism because you have all of these like real things like this, you know, mm-hmm. like Clay kidnapping these kids. Mm-hmm. Every city he goes to, he's yep. he's that's that happens all the time. It does. It's very real. Yeah. You know, and so, but you have the magical elements and they just slide in seamlessly. Mm-hmm. Like, so I'm like, fantasy? Oh, it felt more magical realism, like. And I, call, and I call that a compliment. Realism. I, <laughs> it is a truth. This is what, that's one of my favorite genres. Mm-hmm. And so same. And I, I don't think people feel like they can do it. Mm-hmm. So they call it something else. But my friend, I think, uh-huh. <laughs> I think you're a magical realism kind of because you're so brilliant with everything and how you wear and you throw it mm-hmm. in there. It makes sense that this dude's going to become the hyena. It makes yeah. sense. Yeah. You know. It's an accepted part. And, and that's the thing that you see in a lot of African traditional literature as well, yes. is that the magical is, is an accepted part day. of life. So it's not fantasy. That's just, you know, the interaction with, with the gods and their presence in your everyday life. And the unexplained is just like, yeah, we can explain everything and it's just accepted. And, and that's um, okay. so it's, it's real. Yeah, it's, it's more reality. And, and I did the same in in my Mabo Reina series with the quarter storm and the foreign exchange, it's, it's more magical realism as well than straight fantasy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, yeah. I have those in my Kindle. So mm-hmm. yeah, cool. All right. Okay. Yeah. And I, I was wondering, cause I said to myself, when I was reading, going back and I read beloved, just pieces of it. And I said, I think it's because black people, and I'm just sticking with black women because that's who I deal with. Yeah. Black mm-hmm. women, we carry magic in us anyway. Like I totally believe in magic. I totally believe that when I speak something, I can speak it into existence. Like that's my as right. do I. Yep, as do I. So it's like I so writing stuff that and it happens. I'm like, yeah, that's normal. Mm-hmm. That's just normal stuff. Yep. So yeah, it's definitely. I just absolutely adore everything you put on the paper. I'm so serious. And I'm okay, fangirling again, but I adore everything you put on the paper because God, I really appreciate beautiful. that. I really it's appreciate my truth. that. I'm telling you, because I can't lie. I won't remember the lie I told and then I'll get caught. <laughs> Same. <laughs> so why bother, you, right? <laughs> exactly. I, I, I do. I love, I love Bacchanal and it's, it's, redemption i think at its core that's what i love about it that yeah every there's redemption yes there and if -hmm. you can't be redeemed then you can be vanquished and that's still a sort of redemption that's redemption you're not stuck here by yourself right you know Mm -hmm. so i'm going to ask you what is the most difficult thing you've written probably the most difficult thing that i have written is the scene in bacchanal where the person that comes to the carnival and is not a really nice dude, person that, that and, and we're just going to say it, right? Because we're talking, you've read the book, the lynching uh, scene. Yes. That lynching scene was probably the most difficult. And it was, there was another iteration of that scene that was even more descriptive, more visceral, that I, I was not even comfortable with publishing. So I went back and rewrote it. And it's still, and it's because, you know, and again, it comes from truth. Um, but yeah. there's some things that go too far for me, 
even on the page. Mm -hmm. So I rewrote that scene, but it was still the most difficult thing that I have ever written. The redemption for me is what happened to him once he, once the carnival got a hold of him. And I still think about that scene, both the writing of the the lynching scene and then the redemptive arc. Mm -hmm. I think about those constantly, but it's tough, right? Because again, speaking to what you were talking about with magical realism, it's real. It happened. Right. It happened so many times that it's it's a unmistakable, you know, reality. So having to revisit that in my own eyes, take the accounts that I've read about and and write something like that. Mm-hmm. And then to write Clay's piece of it in mm-hmm. that he recognized what he saw. Again, we talk about um, decisions, right? Um, He knew that he did not like what he was seeing. He knew what was going to happen, but he also made a decision to save himself because he knew that against this, this group of of men that were there that he wouldn't have a chance. And Mm -hmm. he made the decision to say, this isn't right. I'm not going to sacrifice myself at this point, but here's this ticket. Come Come see me. That's why Clay is such a complicated character because I mean, his history, you brought that up like close mm-hmm. to the end of the book where you shared like this is where he came from. I was like, oh. Oh, yeah. Not but, Clay. <laughs> yeah. But yes, Clay. And but he, what I think happens, I think for a lot of people, even this, and even this sordid American history is that if you are open enough to, to grow, you can look back on some things that you have done in the past and say, yeah, you know what? Not cool. I wasn't right. I can't change the past, but maybe I can do better. Yeah. And, and that's kind of, again, again, one of those layers that I wanted to write into mm-hmm. um, the characters, into the book and each of the characters in the book to say that every human being, I think that's walked this planet since the beginning has made some questionable decisions, mm-hmm. has done some things that we look back and say, yeah, you know what? I could have done that better. <laughs> Should have done that better. Can't change that, but but maybe next time I can do better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And I have I, to hope that most people, I have to hope that most people feel that way. That was one of my questions. Yeah. Can people change? I think they can. I, I hope so. But I, yeah. you know what? Because and I, I, I shared this with, with someone before, but as a Southern woman mm-hmm. who was born, raised, and continues to live here, mm-hmm. it is kind of the snake catching its own tail. Yeah, That's how it feels because it's like, I'm here, I'm walking the same soil that, that my enslaved ancestors walked. And mm-hmm. I'm probably, you know, I'm probably having lunch with one of the, you know, Absolutely. descendants of the people who enslaved my people and yet there is this kind of camaraderie and 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 connection right is there like you know we are woven in this pattern and it's like but doesn't make sense that we are here and yet it makes all the sense and then it makes all the sense and the truth is ella i think if people couldn't change our our history would be different Hmm. the history in this country would be very different if people were absolutely incapable of change. Hmm. Uh, And I'm not saying that's a perfect um, place. I'm not saying that people are perfect, but I'm thinking that if attitudes, thoughts, laws um, were the same, things would be very, very different in 2023 um, than they are now. And yeah, we got a long way to go, but things have changed. I'm not going, I'm not going to insult my, my ancestors by saying they haven't. I'm not saying right. we're there, but I'm um I'm, I'm certainly not where my grandmother was. So well there you go. There's and change. that's called putting it in perspective. Mm-hmm. <laughs> putting it in perspective, because that's exactly, yeah, I'm not where my grandma was. Yeah. Um, okay. So we're gonna pivot. I wish you had like three hours to talk to me. <laughs> uh, this is this has been an outstanding conversation. So I feel the same. Okay, okay, okay. I'm going to get you out of here because I'm a woman of my word. So we're going to pivot and we're looking at navigating the publishing industry as a Black woman, right? Mm-hmm. That is one of the, my platforms, you know, and like because everybody knows the truth of the publishing industry and how very white it is and how much they they kind of cling to this white default 
and mm-hmm. all of the things, right? So I, I'm always interested to know, like, what or who, where did you get the audacity as a Black woman writer mm-hmm. to say, oh, yes, publishing company or, yeah, publishing industry. I know you said this is not my space, but I'm here and I'm going to thrive. Yeah. We just keep pressing and I owe it to them to keep going. I mean, there's, there's no space here that's created for us. Yet, you know, a lot of us continue to thrive. And so that if they can, I, I can't stick my head in the sand and say, oh, I can't do it. I'm a black woman. They're not going to accept me. I have to say I can do it. I have to make them accept me. Um, I know that there are going to be some challenges along with that. And that acceptance may look different from one year to the next. But I have to try because that's what we have always done. We've always pressed and said, OK, yeah, I'm not really supposed to own this land and, and grow my crops, but hey, I have no choice. I'm going to have to try it. And if they burn me out, I'm going to plan again. So I think that's what we've always done to some degree. It's it's scary and it's it's tough to do it because, you know, you know that rejection could be. Re- and when I say there was a ton of rejection, there was. But all you need is one. Yeah. And through all of those rejections, I found that one that said, okay, there is something in this book that I love and we are going to polish it to a sheen and then we're going to get it out here. And so I think that's kind of the message for any of us who has ever tried anything that we haven't tried before, that has ever navigated a space where we weren't supposed to be, that has ever bought a house in a neighborhood where maybe somebody didn't think we should be. We was like, well, I'm, I got to do it anyway. I got to push, got to push forward. So that's kind of what we do. And, and that's what I, I, I give the, the credit to my writing, to my significant other. He saw something, even when I didn't believe, and said, mm-hmm. you can do this. You should do this. You, writer is, is written all over you. So even having the courage to write, to put some words on the page was a major hurdle. Getting somebody to read those words and give you critiques. And to take the the darts and the bullets and the slashes that went along with that and then get better and then keep going. Mm-hmm. It's just almost that I could not do it. Wow. I'm so glad that you couldn't not do it because like we need your words, definitely. And we need your stories. So I I I asked, what's the one thing that would send you to my couch? Mm-hmm. If I were a truly licensed therapist, what would send you to my couch? about dealing with the industry overall? Gosh, probably just fighting for recognition. Mm. Just wanting to be seen and recognized and for someone outside of your community even to say, I see value in what you're doing and I'm going to promote you like I promote these other people. You know, like I see this book as being on the on par with that. Um, just that's that constant struggle of being able to be on a level playing field. Playing field yeah. isn't level and it, it's it's hard to keep trying to claw your way up. Um, but that, I think yeah. that's the and toughest think, part of this. Thank you for being vulnerable, because I think a lot of people, especially black women, would be like, oh, my gosh. So now she want white folk to validate her. It's not mm-hmm. about validation. Mm-hmm. It's, about it's recognition. It's about absolutely. Yeah, it's about, mm-hmm. yes, equality. If, mm-hmm. if I write this book and you say it's good enough for you to publish, then it is also good enough for you to push out there, just like you're pushing all the mediocre books that you accept from people who don't look like me. Mm-hmm. I'm probably not supposed to say that, but since I don't have an agent and I'm not really in bed with any publishers, mm-hmm. I can say what I want. But so, and this is me saying this, right? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. That there's a lot of mediocre books that are bestsellers and they're in every bookstore across America and the world. And they are formulaic mediocre. I've read this story 35,000 times. Thank you for changing the name of the protagonist and the antagonist. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And so, yeah. And so... Yeah, I, I'm, I'm seriously like thinking, do I want to become a part of this of this machine? Yeah. And everything in me says, 
know, except this one tiny little bit that says, but you have to. But you have to. Yep. And then you, you, you manage that system and you navigate it and you continue to knock down the doors as the people who have come before us have. That's what we do. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's not about me. It's not about, no, it's about the person. It's about the people. It's about the young girls who are like, oh, I want to do that Coming behind you. Yep. Yep. Mm -hmm. Our responsibility, right? I guess so. I guess so, Ms. Ron. I guess. (laughs) Okay. I'm going to get you out of here. I just have like a couple more questions and then we play the game. Okay. Yay. I love the game. Okay. So what, what do you want to tell aspiring writers or writers who are like me? Like Mm -hmm. I've published books, I've done the thing, I'm, I'm in here, but what tell writers that can kind of, I don't know, light a fire under their butts or give Mm -hmm. them some encouragement? What, Um, what words? I guess I would say if you feel the spark to write, um, you are going to write. No one's, no one's going to do the work for you. You have to do it, but you have to make sure that it is what you want to do, first of all. Right. Because if you don't, you won't put the work and the energy and the passion into it that you need to be successful at it. Um, and I'm not saying there's any guarantees, but the first thing you have to do is be honest with yourself um, that this is something that you want to do. And then the next thing to do is just to put the words on the page one after the other. You have to then share that work with somebody who you're going to trust to give you feedback on it. You must practice that craft. I'm not saying you got to write a thousand words every day. That's nonsense. All you have to do is to continue to get better and be dedicated to your craft. And then put those words out there. Take that step Mm -hmm. and and then put the words out there, whether that's through traditional publishing, whether it's through self or hybrid or some combination thereof. Get the words out there and then reach back and help someone else. That's it. I love that. You're so succinct. Boom, boom, boom. <laughs> <laughs> I'd have been rambling for days. And so what message? If I were like the figurehead for the publishing industry and mm-hmm. I get to go back and tell everybody, this is what Veronica G. Henry says. And this is what she wants you to know as a Black woman writer. What am I telling them? I am telling them that the greatest asset you have is um, a variety of voices. Don't sleep on it. Well, there you go. You got this thing down. Like, what? Are you a journalist or something? You would think so. I'm so sorry. It's like, like, boom, boom, boom. Don't sleep on it. Okay. All right. Gosh, this has been so much fun. I just want to. It has. Or something. Because I just absolutely love talking with you. And now we play the game. The game is called Tell the Whole Story. Mm Mm-hmm. And this is where I will give you a word and you will tell me a little anecdotal, personal story with that word in it. And you will end it with hashtag bookish, hashtag writer's life, or hashtag writing while black. Okay. Bookish, writer's life, or writing while black. Yes. Okay. Okay. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. Your first word is scale. My first word is scale. Okay. Jeez, this is tougher (laughs) than I thought. Let's see. Okay. I'm writing currently, working on final edits for my next book. It's called The Canopy Keepers. It is a book that is more fantasy than anything I've written before. The scale of world building was much larger than Um, what I'd done before because it wasn't necessarily baked in the reality. And so learning how to um, scale up my world um, into a secondary uh, world fantasy, that was a lot of work. And I'll call that hashtag writer's life. Wow. Okay. Now I'm even more excited. Your next word is torment. Torment. What's tormenting for me is having to split my life between full-time job and then writing, which I love immensely. But that is writer's hashtag writer's life. There you go. You're just killing it. Um, <laughs> your next word is order. Order. I am probably organized and orderly to a fault. And that's, it's weird because the part of me that, you know, is the tech career is that orderly analytical person. But the part of me that is a writer is that dreamy, 
introspective, right-brained person. So order is a very important part of my life. And what I've done is bring that into my writing process and that I'm very structured in, in how I you know, manage my days, how I even you know, organize my writing outlines, stuff like that, and how I go about completing a book. So hashtag writer's life. Oh my gosh. So, okay. I have to just real quickly, I just, I just need to like not be on the show with you, but just kind of pick your brain at some point in time, <laughs> because I am the least ordered person. Really? <laughs> I was on with Vanessa Riley and she was like, yeah, yeah, I'm this pragmatic and da, 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 da. I was like, yeah, if you're type A, I'm type Z because mm-hmm. But I want to be more because it's more efficient. Yeah. Can I? Okay. <laughs> I was just, I'm going to email you and be like, hey, can we, can we set up a date? You can help me figure out a schedule or something, please. Because I dope. need help. I need help. Your next word is respite. Oh, gosh. I think I'm pronouncing that right. Respite? Respite? Respite. Respite. Um, okay. Respite. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say, well, I'll go back to what we were talking about earlier. Uh, You need your creative brain and and your spirit just in general needs time to heal, needs time Mm -hmm. to just be in order to recharge. And I think that's an important part of a creative career as well, because once you start publishing, you, you get on this train and it's like book, book, um, and, and all that, that, those uh, that that's a thing of the past, and I'm not complaining, but that's the way publishing is. You know, you, you, you get into the years? systems. No, not eleven, but it's sometime. Yeah, I mean, I actually wrote one iteration of that book, set it aside, and then came back to it. So maybe told what was because there was time in between. But you do have to to create space, even in this crazy, hectic publishing schedule. You got to create that space, or burnout is a a real thing. So. Mm-hmm. It's, I think, taking periodic respites is critical. I think that's another hashtag writer's life. I think so. Your first one could have been bookish, though, because the whole canopy keepers and the writing of the... That could have been bookish. You're right. We'll switch that one. Yes. Okay. There you go. And your last word isn't really a word so much as it's, you know, just fun for me. So it's yuck, yum. One yuck, one yum. Gosh. Yuck is... White chocolate, <laughs> yum, <laughs> yum, dark chocolate. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we are kindred souls. <laughs> I, I agree with that. <laughs> My word. Okay, great. I don't want to let you go. Uh, this has Dude. been fun, but thank you. Now uh, it's you. been an outstanding conversation. I really appreciate you the invite. Um, you taking the time and your very thoughtful questions. Thank you so much for agreeing. And I'm, I'm glad we finally got here. And you've already given me Ms. Eaton Royce's name because that's the next person I'm going to reach out to. And hopefully, yeah, she can, she'll, she'll say yes. Cool. Can you tell the listeners what's going on with you now, what they can look forward to and how to get in touch with you? Certainly. Let's see, I have three books out, Bacchanal, Quarter Storm, and The Foreign Exchange. Later this year in December, The Canopy Keepers should be out. The Canopy Keepers features a Black woman, wildland firefighter, who is dealing with the effects of climate change in California at Sequoia National Park and uncovers a hidden race, sworn protectors of the giant sequoia trees, and a champion of their people who is fed up with humanity, the damage that's done to the sequoias, and wants to put an end to it and us. Be on the lookout for the Canopy Keepers in December. In fact, it might be up for pre-order. You can find me on Twitter at the moment. Who knows? Might drop off of there. But on Twitter, I'm at Veronica Writes. On Instagram, I am at The Word Slinger. And my website is veronicahenry.net. And remember, I am Veronica G. Henry. With beautiful melanated skin. Yes. That's Thank my addition. <laughs> yes. Okay, thank you so much, Veronica. And I am seriously going to email you. And ask Please if do. You can get together on another Zoom call and help me get my life together. All righty. Thank you, Ella. Thank Thanks you. for having me. And I wish you a good rest of your day. Thank you so much. You too. Mm-hmm. Bye bye. Bye bye. Thank you for joining me for this session of Black Writer Therapy. 
be sure to follow and leave a review wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. And keep the conversations going on Instagram using our hashtag BlackWriterTherapy. I'm your host and unlicensed therapist, Alishan, reminding you to be kindest to yourself first, always and in all ways. See you guys next week. Bye.